The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. There's a couple on a long road trip who stopped at a full-service gas station, and the attendant washed their windshield for them. It still looked dirty to the driver, so he asked the attendant to wash it again. The attendant obliged and washed it again, and it still looked dirty to the driver. He started to get upset and mad, and he said, don't you even know how to wash a windshield? And his wife calmly reached over and took his glasses off him and started wiping off his glasses. This morning, I want us to consider the proper attitude for suffering. There's a godly way to view things in this life. While other people in this world may look through dark, dirty, smudged lenses, we should be looking at things from a clear, biblical, godly, hopeful, joyful perspective. And that is so important and so true, especially when it comes to how we view suffering and our attitude about it. Instead of being shocked or ashamed, we should rejoice and glorify God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. This begins a new section in Peter's letter, starting in verse 12, and we, we see that for a, a couple of reasons. Back in verse 11, uh, we see that doxology that Peter sort of ended that section with, the doxology to, to the Lord and the word amen. But then he also opens verse 12 with this word beloved. And you can look back in chapter 2 in verse 11. He did this same thing. He used the word beloved to introduce a new section about submission. So he does the same thing here. And this word beloved, you know, we read over it real quick. But remember, these Christians are suffering. And they're really feeling that this world is not their home. And so for Peter to label them as beloved, it would have reminded them not only that Peter cared for them and that he, he loved them, but they shared a loving bond with one another. We talked about the importance of that full capacity love last week. As we live in this world and we serve him together, especially when times of suffering come, do not neglect that loving bond that we have with one another. It is so crucial. 
So Peter uses this word to remind him of that and to begin this new section. But we just read these verses. It doesn't really seem like a new section, does it? Because hasn't, been, hasn't Peter been teaching much of this for a while now? That suffering for righteousness is not a bad thing. It's good to suffer for God. He's been teaching this. So why highlight this as a new unit? I think there's one key difference in these verses from what Peter has been saying. And there's definitely some overlap. But these verses have more to do with our internal attitude about suffering rather than our outward response towards suffering. Peter has already noted multiple times what our outward response should be. If we suffer for Christ... Do not outwardly retaliate. Do not fight back, but just have that gracious, submissive endurance like Christ did when he suffered unjustly. Peter taught us that our outward response when we suffer is not to start sinning so that we maybe can escape some of the suffering, but to remain holy and just keep living good, godly lives so that hopefully other people see that witness. And God receives glory. So he's been talking about this, but much, of, uh, much from an outwardly perspective. Now he shifts a little bit to, to our own inner, uh, inward attitude and our perspective and our viewpoint. And we see in these verses that when we suffer, our inner attitude should not be one of shock. And it should not be one of shame but one of joy and one of praise. And so Peter begins by commanding them not to consider this strange. He says in verse 12, think it not strange. If you look back in verse 4, this is the same word Peter used to describe how the world looks at you now that you've hopefully stopped sinning with them. The world looks at that as a strange thing. He uses the same, uh, a form of the same word later in verse 12 as well when he said, don't think that some strange thing happened to you. All of this is, is from the same word. And you may remember from the past couple of weeks that this word was used in the hospitality realm. It was used of entertaining guests, uh, of, of receiving strangers and being hospitable to someone. And so it's sort of figuratively used as something strange perhaps being surprised because something looks out of place. And so it's a great contrast that Peter presents here. This world may be surprised at you when you don't sin with them anymore, but you shouldn't be surprised when you suffer for it. This world may look at you as a stranger who's out of place. And they're sort of right about that. But you should not view sufferings that way. And there's two reasons why we don't need to view sufferings as, as a stranger passing through our lives. One is why would it shock us when God's people suffer in an unholy world? Why would that surprise us? This has been happening since the fall of man. Since Abel's blood was shed by Cain, God's people have suffered for their faith. 
If you suffer for Christ, you're not the first and you won't be the last. It shouldn't really be that shocking to us that a sinful, lost, unbelieving world would heap suffering upon God's people who are trying to live holy. Remember, we're just pilgrims. That's how Peter began the whole letter. This world's not our eternal home. In fact, when Christians suffer, it just proves the prediction of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples the night he was betrayed, Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So when this happens, it just proves that Jesus knew what he was talking about. It just proves that he absolutely knew what was in store. So don't be shocked by this. But the second reason not to be shocked or view sufferings as some stranger that's out of place is because of God's purpose for them. Notice in verse 12 that Peter, Peter calls their sufferings the fiery trial which is to try you. This phrase, which is to try you, points about their purpose of the trials. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But the word fiery, that's kind of strong, isn't it? That's, that's strong language. The fiery trial. This is what we would call figurative language. Uh, these Christians weren't being burned at the stake, although that would happen later, and it has happened through the centuries. And I've said before, more intense persecution would be coming upon these believers in, in the coming years and decades, and uh, as the Roman Empire sort of made that more of an official thing from time to time. But Peter is still okay to use such strong words even to describe just the, the social persecution, the hatred, the slander that these people are facing. Because those sorts of things are still intense and painful. They still hurt. But I want you to look back at chapter 1. And the idea of, of, of fire is going to relate back to something Peter began his letter with. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, we're going to see this idea of fire and of God's purpose behind trials. Verse 6, Peter says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials or testings. Verse 7, That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Bringing up fire again relates this back to chapter 1. And just like chapter 1, that the term fire here isn't meant to be uh, destructive, but refining. Sometimes fire is destructive, but other times it's purifying. Like when you use fire to melt the dross off of gold or off of metal so that you have a more pure element left. And the same thing is true with trials in our lives. And thankfully, we are so blessed to know that God's purpose behind the trials that we face his purpose is for our ultimate good, not for our destruction. And so, we should not be shocked or 
or surprised if we suffer for Christ because Christ predicted it, but also because we know that God's purpose for allowing those trials in the first place is not for destruction, but for the testing of our faith, for our purification, for our maturity, for our growth. Would it shock us to know that God wants us to grow? Of course not. So if God uses trials to make that happen, it should not surprise us. One author says the sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but of his purifying presence. So don't think it's strange. Don't look at it that way. Don't have that perspective on sufferings. But be reminded of God's good purposes. And as we look into verse 13, Peter's going to give us a command. And I, and I would say that the purposes that God has in our sufferings will be fulfilled if we'll follow this command that Peter gives us where he says, Rejoice but rejoice. There's such a strong contrast between the attitude of verse 12 of thinking this is strange and, and, and surprising versus looking at this trial and rejoicing. When our faith is tested, we must continually rejoice. Does that sound a little bit like James? This, this word rejoice is from the same root word James used when he said, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. James told us and commanded us to consider trials joyfully. Not because trials are necessarily fun or joyful in and of themselves, but James goes on and James tells us why we should consider them joyfully. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The joy doesn't come from the trial itself. The joy comes from the fact that we know God can use them for our betterment. Peter's teaching is parallel to that. He almost says it backwards though, doesn't he? James tells us to rejoice because you know what God's going to do. Peter reminded us of God's purpose first and then says rejoice. Rejoice because God has good purposes in your life. And if we rejoice and we count our trials joyfully, God's purposes will be fulfilled. That absolutely will happen. But Peter goes on and gives another reason as to why we should rejoice. Look in verse 13. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Here's another reason for joy when you suffer for Christ. Because suffering for righteousness links you with Christ and his own suffering. The word partakers has the idea of an association with something, uh, a fellowship, some joint togetherness. And I want you to just think about this for a minute, especially for these first century Christians. How important would it be for them to be reminded that when you're suffering for the very name you trusted in, you're suffering because you turned from your pagan idolatry to Jesus Christ, and now you're suffering because of it. Do you think they ever had a question in their mind or a doubt? Why would this be happening if God truly loved me? Why would, this, why would I be going through this if I really did what was right when I made that decision to follow Christ? Maybe I don't have the relationship with him I thought I did. Have you ever done the same? 
Do we have a tendency sometimes during really tough times to question God or maybe doubt things? But we need to understand, just like these readers, that suffering does not mean the absence of God. In this context, suffering for Christ should actually provide assurance rather than promote doubt because you are associated with Christ's sufferings. I like the way one writer put it. He said their suffering was not a threat to their spiritual life, but a pledge of the reality of their union with Christ. Suffering for Christ was not a reason to doubt God. It's proof that you are God's. Why else would you be suffering for Christ? So rejoice. And that rejoicing in this life and rejoicing in suffering is just going to be good practice. Notice the end of verse 13. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Rejoicing and suffering now is just going to lead to even greater rejoicing and joy one day when Christ returns in all of his glory. And this is just another reminder that Peter keeps giving that suffering's not the end. It wasn't the end for Christ. It's not the end for those who are Christ's. And so even as we suffer, we go through tough times, especially if we're suffering for Christ. Don't become so focused and attached and obsessed with things in this life and the, and the physical, temporal nature of things that we lose track of the coming glory and joy in Christ. But so often we get the blinders on. We live in such a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately world that we, that we quit looking down the road. Rejoicing even in sufferings now prepares us for the amazing joy that awaits us when Christ returns in all his glory. And part of that overall rejoicing now comes from the fact that we're blessed by God. Look at verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. The word reproached here, you may have insulted or reviled in your translation. It's a word that has to do with verbal attacks most of the time. It's insults, mockery, you know, hateful speech, those sorts of things, which is just more evidence of the type of persecution they were facing, this uh, social slander and hatred. But when people curse you because you're a Christian, God pronounces you as blessed. That word happy in the King James, uh, other translations say blessed, and that, that's a better translation because it, the word's deeper than our word for happiness. It speaks of a spiritual state of blessedness that is not dependent upon circumstances. You can have a bad day and still be blessed. You might not be happy the way we use the word happy. This word is so... Uh, so deep. It's the same word that Peter used in chapter 3 and verse 14. When he said, but if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. It's the same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Peter would have heard Jesus teach this one day. And he's sort of borrowing from the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 5 and verse 12, Peter wrote, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you 
Same word for blessed, and the word revile is the same word uh, as reproached here. Peter uses the same two words. And Jesus goes on and says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen to what, Peter, uh, what Jesus said. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for the, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus reminded his, his followers that when, when people speak evil against you for his name's sake, you have a great reward in heaven, so rejoice. But in Peter's writing here, he reminds us too that we're also experiencing some of that blessing now in the fact that God's Spirit is with us. We sang from Blessed Assurance a few moments ago, and there's a line in that song that says, What a foretaste of glory divine. And notice what Peter says in, in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. You're blessed, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. We're blessed even now. We have a great reward in heaven, but we're still blessed right now. The word rest in this context of suffering is just such a calming word. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, Come unto me and I will give you rest. And it has the idea of being refreshed, being revived. Here it gives the picture of, some, of something settling down and just remaining there, abiding upon you. Have you ever had someone visit your house and you told them to take off your shoes and stay a while? Just get comfortable. Don't, don't rush off. You're welcome here. The point with this word is that the Holy Spirit isn't coming and going from you. He's not a busy traveler who's, who's trying to decide how, how quickly can I leave Brother Matt today and go focus on someone else or what. He doesn't pick up his bags and move on. He is resting upon you, dwelling, abiding upon you. And it must be through his presence that our souls are then refreshed during our fiery trials. And that brings him glory. The very last part of verse 14 is not in all Greek manuscripts, so your translation may or may not include the part about on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. The point here is simply that while this world speaks evil against him, just like they do against us, we praise Him, and we glorify Him, and His presence in our lives is praiseworthy. If we've got God's Spirit in our lives and, and resting upon us, well, no wonder we can rejoice. No wonder we're blessed. But in verse 15, Peter paused and once again reminded us that this blessedness and this joy doesn't come from just any and all suffering. And he sort of said similar things before. Sometimes people just suffer for their own sin. Sometimes people suffer for wrongdoing. There's no blessing in that. So in verse 15, he said, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or, a, or as a busybody in other men's matters. There's no blessing in those things. You can look back at chapter 2 and verse 20. And this is really similar to that verse where he talked about how there's no credit if you patiently endure suffering that your own sin brought upon you. 
If you just suffer your consequences and take it, there's no reward in that. There's no grace in that. He said something similar in chapter 3 and verse 17 when he said it's, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he said similar things before, but here if we're still focusing on our inward attitudes, our own inward attitude about suffering should be different, and we should be able to have the, the ability to distinguish consequences for sin as opposed to suffering for a Christian. If you murder someone or steal from someone or do something wrong and you suffer for it, that's not the time to have the inner attitude of joy and blessedness and glorifying God. You should be embarrassed and ashamed. So Peter wants us to make sure I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Don't let anybody suffer for these reasons. I want to focus on the very last word that he uses here. We know what murder and, and thievery and evil doing means, but this, this phrase, a busybody in other men's matters, comes from just one word, um, and it's pretty fascinating. Some people believe Peter made this word up. He just, he just made it up. Because it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It was never used in the Septuagint. And we have no record of it ever being used even in secular Greek before Peter wrote this. So we, we do have pretty good reason to think that he just invented a word. It's a combination of two words. One word that means belonging to another. And the other word that means overseer. So most English translations, we sort of just put those two words together. And you may have the word meddler in your translation. Some translate it as troublemaker. King James has it, the idea of a busybody in other men's matters. That's probably the best we can do to define it since it just wasn't used that much, is just look at the parts of the word. And so this seems really different from the other things he's just said, doesn't it? I mean, murderer, stealing, evildoing, meddling. I'd much rather you meddle in my life than, than kill me. So it seems like there may be this descending scale of, of things that might bring suffering in your life. But if we think about this, this doesn't mean that we don't care for other people, that we're not concerned about them, or that we don't try to help them, that we don't pray for them. But sometimes people have a tendency to work so hard trying to fix someone else that they neglect their own responsibilities. I think that might have happened to Peter once in his life. I want you to turn to John chapter 21. The very last chapter in the book of John, John chapter 21. You probably know the story in Peter's life. He has denied Christ three times, but after the resurrection, we have this appearance of Christ uh, in front of his apostles in John chapter 21. And Christ made sure that Peter knew he was forgiven, that he's restored, that he is still valuable and needed. Christ still needed Peter. And so three times Jesus commanded Peter to feed my sheep. And then Jesus even predicted that, uh, that Peter would die for him, which is something Peter had boasted about earlier. It just was going to take a while for Peter to mature to that point of courage. And so I want you to look at verse 19 through 23. 
Verse 19 says, This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. That prediction that Jesus just made about Peter's death. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, that's to Peter, follow me. Peter, follow me. Well, look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That's John. Verse 21. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. And that's very emphatic. You follow me. Verse, verse 23, we should read this, I guess, to wrap up this part of the context. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that this disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Jesus didn't say John's going to live forever, but just Peter, what if I want John to live forever? That doesn't change anything of what I'm telling you. You follow me. You feed my sheep. I don't know if Peter had that scene in his mind as he invented this word about um, trying to oversee the affairs of someone else, but it made me think about it. And I think Peter knew that there can be a danger sometimes of us being overly meddlesome. And I'll just use the word annoyingly involved in other people's affairs. It doesn't mean we don't care about them and are concerned and don't pray. But other people make their choices. And we cannot allow the choices of other people to keep us from fulfilling our responsibilities and our duties for God. And I think Peter learned that lesson for sure. Overall, this, this verse 15 it's very similar to what we've seen before in Peter. And so the repetition must be important that we need to and have to see the difference of suffering for sin versus suffering for God. There is a difference. Don't assume that all suffering should be considered joyful or leads to blessing. Sometimes you bring it upon yourself through your own sin. But in verse 16, back in Peter, he says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. This, this phrase, as a Christian, just reminds us again of the type of suffering we're talking about here. It's not just any old suffering. It's specifically because you're a follower of Christ. That's what this word Christian means. Christian means follower of Christ. And really, this may surprise you, but the word is only used three times in the New Testament. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. And actually, if you remember when the, uh, when the phrase was coined, it wasn't by us. Believers didn't make up this term. It was those outside called people who followed Christ Christians. That happened first at Antioch. I believe in Acts 11, but it was in Acts. And so it's sort of a label that the enemies gave Christians, it seemed like, a way to let... Those are those Christ followers. And now Peter uses that word 
to remind them potentially and emphasize again, you're suffering for following Christ. And I know that's the way people look at you and that's the way they may label you. And to them, it may not be a term of endearment, but it's nothing to be ashamed of. Being associated with Christ, following Him, and even suffering for Him is nothing to hang your head about. Peter says, let him not be ashamed. That almost sounds like an allowance, right? Like, ah, it's okay if he's not ashamed. Don't, you know, let him not be ashamed. It's stronger than that. It's more forceful than that. It's, it has the force of a command. Do not be ashamed. Never be embarrassed. Never be disgraced by your faith in Christ, even if it leads to suffering. Ironically, this comes from Peter, the very one who did deny Christ three times. And he's now the one commanding us not to be ashamed if your association with Christ might lead to some hatred. It might lead to some outcast. Might lead to some suffering. Don't be ashamed. But let him glorify God for this. Peter is easy to pick on sometimes as a, neg as a negative example. But when he says at the end of verse 16, let him glorify God on this behalf, he matured and got to a point where he could do this too. So we should point out the positive example from Peter here. There's a story in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles are, are suffering because they're preaching Jesus. And Luke writes, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. What a change in Peter's life from a man who, who was ashamed, he did deny Christ, to a man who rejoices in the fact that he was considered worthy to suffer for Christ. So if you don't think you have the courage to do that now, there's hope for you too. There's a whole bunch of Peters in this room right now, I bet. But hopefully just like Peter throughout his life, he matured and he grew and we can and should do the same. What a change to go from someone who's ashamed to someone who is rejoicing. It has a lot to do with our outlook and our perspective and the way we look at things. When we suffer for our faith, for being followers of Christ, we have to have the right attitude about it. Do not be shocked. Don't be shocked even in this country when it starts happening even more and more. Do not be shocked. And do not be ashamed. But rejoice and glorify God because He's refining you. Because it's a blessing because His Spirit's resting on you, and because one day we'll experience unspeakable joy when Christ returns. 
So have the right attitude and perspective and viewpoint about it. Or we'll get dragged down by the world. We'll maybe deny Christ like Peter did. And that's tough for God to use someone who's denying him. What sort of witness is that? And we may have doubts and questions instead of letting the trials create assurance in our lives. That's not the point of suffering. You know, sometimes unbelievers and skeptics and critics, they, they use suffering as a reason to question God. It's one of, it's one of a, an atheist's favorite things to, to go to, is that if there was truly a loving, good God, why is there so much suffering in this world? Suffering does not mean the absence of God, but rather it presents him with a unique opportunity to prove himself even more. That's true in your life. And it was absolutely true in the life of Jesus. The fact that Christ suffered does not give us a reason to doubt God, but gives us every reason to believe in God. God used suffering, the very thing we complain about so often, to, to be the avenue of our redemption. And so people ask the question, what's God going to do about suffering? He became a man and suffered for us, with us, as one of us. That's God's final answer to suffering. I read one author this week who, who used the phrase that if God wasn't just going to do away with suffering in a moment, he took his own medicine sort of thing. He experienced what it was like to the full extent In just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And as we remember the sufferings of Jesus Christ, remember the things we've learned throughout this letter about, about them. Be thankful that Jesus did not retaliate. Be thankful that he patiently graciously submitted to unjust suffering. He was not shocked. He was not ashamed. He was joyful. He was blessed. He was glorifying the Father. And yet his suffering wasn't the end. He was raised and he was exalted and he's coming again. And if you'll repent of your sins and trust him, he'll forgive you and he will give you life and you will share in his glory. If suffering paved the way for such a glorious victory, then shouldn't we have the right attitude about suffering in our lives? Clean the eyeglasses off if it's still looking dark and smudgy. Don't be shocked. Don't be ashamed. But rejoice and praise God. Let's stand and bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we prepare for this invitation and as our hearts and minds prepare to take your supper, Lord, we're just so thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. 
it's amazing, Lord, that you could take something like suffering and give us life because of it. Father, I pray that you'll help our attitudes about suffering for you to be where they should be. Not to be shocked and not to be ashamed, but to find joy and rejoice and to glorify you because of what you can do. God, if there's someone here today who needs to make a decision about following you, we pray that, that he or she would make that this morning, Lord. And we pray that your way is done in this invitation and in the rest of the service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.